0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I'm Eric Barton. I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus, and just uh, for the record, I was here in the first hour, Nathan, and I came back. So I hope there's some reason for that to have happened. Hey, I'm delighted that you're here. Welcome to church. The church, the new covenant community of the Spirit, the people who are indwelled by God's Spirit, who come together to study God's Word as God's people. That's the church. That's it. So let me just set expectations. If you're expecting a dunking booth, that's not going to happen here, at least not until after lunch this is what we do we come together as god's people in god's spirit to study god's word and we trust that when we do that god's going to do a transformative work so i just want to set your expectations accordingly so we believe that in god's sovereignty his grace his goodness that he has divinely purposed every single one of our steps to be in this place this morning which means god really does sincerely legitimately want to communicate and commune with every single one of us so i just invite you to lay aside whatever other distraction or agenda you might have and just pause for a moment and say, but what if God actually is trying to speak to me? What is it that might prohibit, that might inhibit, that might hinder that? Remove it. And I trust that God will then do the work that only God can do. I do want to welcome you to worship this morning. Um, I want to make you aware that if you are a member of this church, tomorrow, Monday... June 18th, you should be receiving a letter uh, either via email or snail mail. And I know that sometimes we as a church have trained our congregation to pay no attention to mass communication. But let me just tell you, we really would love for you to watch for this and to read this. It is an expression of worship. We get to sort of update our church family on what's going on with our finances. We believe that our financial dealings and doings are acts of worship as we, God's people, steward the resources that he's entrusted to us. We want to let you know what's going on. Some really great things you've already heard about the incredible work that's happening in Sierra Leone. All of our campuses are growing. We want to talk about what's going on with our attendance and our giving. And at the same time, be very uh, clear and forthright to say we are now in the summer months which typically slowed down for us. Last year, we took a pretty significant hit financially, had to make some painful decisions at the end of the fall. So we just want everyone to be aware of that, to prayerfully consider either continuing or increasing your giving, not because uh, that's going to get you any closer to God. It doesn't. But we want to be very clear in inviting you into that because we believe it's an act of worship and it matters for the health of our church, for the the health of every individual family and every individual person. So please be on the lookout for that. If you don't receive that tomorrow, please let us know. We want to make sure and get that to you. Now then, I want to shift gears and jump in the Wayback Machine as we dive into our sermon and our passage for this morning. It was the summer of 1999. Some of you can remember that far back. For some of you, it's sort of just a gray, blurry haze. Hashtag, Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but that's all right. We forgive you for that. 1999, we were in Houston, Texas. It was hot. It was the summer. And my wife and I were serving a church. And we were participant, uh, volunteer ministry leaders, for this thing called Camp TallaWood. It was the church to which we belonged, and we were youth workers, and it was my responsibility for camp to come up with what we called the big game, which, as it might sound, was a very large game this was about 390 students and sponsors and it was my task to come up with the big game and so i racked my brain dove deeply into my own deviance and depravity and i came up with something and i think it was fairly maniacally genius the game that i came up with to be played was called in my own invention acquire the tire see even back then, I was doing rhymes and alliteration. Acquire the tire, because I thought steal the wheel was too goofy. But acquire the tire, now that's cool. Here was the deal. 390 people, all in a humongous circle, on a field about the size of two football fields, sort of side by side. So about 100 yards by 100 yards, All right all of them wearing their team t-shirts. It's Houston, well, northeast Houston, in the middle of July. So the temperature outside is kind of like, you know, when you've seen the space shuttle launch and it's about this high off the ground. Yeah, that's what Houston feels like in July, like that temperature right there. So we had all these kids gathered around, and the idea is I had all these enormous tractor inner tubes. These things are about like 12 feet in diameter. They're enormous and they're all aired up and they're all stacked up in the center of the field in this big, huge column. And they'd been baking under the Earth's sun for several hours. So they were also about 300 degrees Kelvin. What could possibly go right? It's awesome. And what I would do is I had all these kids in a circle and I would call out sixth graders and all of the sixth graders would come rushing from the side of the field. By the way, this field, that's sort of in quotes because the field was really just a big open space with gravel and sticker burrs. It was awesome. So all these sixth graders would run in at full speed, and they would collide in this sort of collision of collarbones and pheromones and sweat, and it would just be this awful sound, and they would, just, and they would reach for these molten hot inner tubes, and they would try to drag them. And the idea was you had to drag it back across the line for your team, and I would award you points. That so was fine when I did the sixth graders. But then round two, I said, okay, listen, now the points double." For every inner tube, the points double, and now we're going to add some fun. And so I would coat every inner tube with ranch dressing, because, you know, ranch dressing. And so I would coat it all in ranch dressing, and then I would call, like, you know, the sophomore boys, and they'd come running in together. There was teeth flying everywhere. There was hair and boys using their nails, which is very macho. And then so that would happen. Round three, I would double the points again. Now I'm including honey. And ketchup, because of course honey and ketchup. And then it got nastier and more disgusting. Then we have syrup, now we have like mustard, now we have laundry detergent because not enough people were crying. And so we just kept piling on the fluids. And I kept telling them, that the points kept kept doubling every single round. Finally, I called like all uh, senior boys. Of course, all these dudes, knuckle-draggers, hairy-backed guys who were on the football team decided, this is where I get to take out all of life's frustrations for not getting to play in college. I now get to take it out on this guy. And so they would just wail on one another, drag each other across, and it was glorious. My happiest, proudest moments until the final. I said, listen, final round. This is just for the sponsors, just the adults. And of course, all the adults are like, I ain't doing that. That's stupid. They're kicking rocks. and I didn't come out here for this. I'm an accountant for Pete's sake. I'm not doing this. I said, the points are worth five times. Oh, yeah, the points are worth five times. So, of course, all the kids are like, you got to do it, you got to do it. I blow the whistle. Not a single sponsor stayed put. They all took off to the center, I mean, with great violent aggression. One girl named Tiffany Cobb, who I refer to as the princess, she jumped in an inner tube and she starts making her way back across the line. When Debbie Bodecker, who is 54 years old, and incidentally, about five foot four any way you turn her, Debbie jumps into the center of this inner tube and she starts tossing back. Tiffany tries to dig in, but Tiffany's only sense of grip was her face. So she's literally face down through her tube and Debbie's dragging her, because Debbie's center of gravity was much lower, do you see? And so she's just dragging her, gets her back across the line, she's bloody, she's bruised, and it was at that point that I finally disclosed Oh, by the way, the points don't really matter. The points don't actually accomplish anything. But y'all were awesome. The points had absolutely no bearing on the rest of the week. It was all for my own maniacal depravity. And it was glorious. And I think back on that all the time, and I think, you know what? How impressive it is, how energetic people can get when they're vying for something. When they perceive some sort of reward, what will people do? I mean, one poor guy sprayed his lunch spaghetti all over an oak tree, was bloodied and bruised, like, that's the greatest moment of my life. I said, you didn't win anything. I don't care. He was vying for something that he thought actually mattered. Now, it turns out it didn't matter. But it gets me to thinking, what if there really was a reward that really mattered? What if there was something that we all said, gosh, I wonder if that's really worth my life? What if there was one who was not only sovereign and glorious and awesome and mighty and powerful, he was also noble and compassionate and good and loving and caring and kind. And what if he desperately wanted to just know you, to be with you? And what if it was really, really an eventuality that you would get to see him, be with him, know him, spend time with him? That was the actual end of the line. Would that not change the way you went about your day? Oh, I understand that it's not just one afternoon in Northeast Houston, but for the rest of your life. What if we were actually inclined to go for that sort of real reward of being with Jesus? We're going to go to a text this morning, and I hope that what it'll teach us is what we will all take away is our big idea for the morning, and it quite simply just goes like this. Vi with a view. Vie with a view. Your whole life, everything that you are, everything that you have, all the relationships that you steward, everything, marshal them together and vie. Bring them together and point them in a particular direction with something in mind, something in view. With that, would you please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think perhaps one of the most crucial, central core texts in the whole of the Bible. I come to it to teach it this morning with great fear and trepidation. It is the manual for how to be a preacher. Feels sort of like me standing up here and extolling the essences of Weight Watchers. Very vulnerable right now. This is how to be God's preacher. And this is this text, this is this passage, teaching all of us how to vie with a view. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'll read this entire passage and then we'll unpack it and then we'll apply it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is God's word. This is the Apostle Paul sitting in Rome in a dungeon during his second Roman imprisonment. So the very last thing he'll ever write is the book of 2 Timothy. And in fact, chapter 4 is the very last chapter that the Apostle Paul will ever write. This is it. This is his last shot, his last pitch to continue the ministry to which God has called him. 2 Timothy has four chapters, and every one of those four chapters has three common elements. You'll find this in every single chapter. Number one is the Word of God, the centrality, the promise, the criticality, the foundation of God's Word as His communication to us. Paul's going to say in every single chapter, preach the Word, protect the Word, guide with the Word, guard the Word. Second element is the call to suffering. I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden, saith the Apostle Paul. It's going to be hard, you're going to meet opposition, you're going to encounter resistance. Plow forward. There is a call to suffering for the cause and the cross of Christ. Number three, the day of evaluation. We will stand before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Every single person in human history will stand before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, on what terms? the Word of God, the call to suffer, and the day of evaluation that is for every single person. So with that, let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm just going to unpack reasonably briefly these verses, and then we'll see how it applies to us in our daily lives. In chapter 4, we have to remember that coming right out of chapter 3, Paul has just told Timothy, Hey, God's Word, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is central. It is profitable for instruction so that the man or woman of god may be wise unto salvation god's word is the thing around which we gather and so in chapter four the very last chapter of paul's apostolic ministry he says i charge you it's a technical royal legal decree he makes up this huge compound word it's not just hey timothy listen Once you've finished binging that show, I want you to get around to doing that. No, 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 no. This is the thing. I solemnly, royally, legally testify. This is your charge. This is your mandate. This is your call. This is your purvey. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. In other words, this is as stern and strong a call as Paul can possibly make. God is my witness, the Lord Jesus Christ in view, Timothy. This is not a suggestion. This is not advice. This is my call on your life. This is the thing that you do primarily and principally. Wow, this is a kind of a big deal. This Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Paul says, Timothy, this is the thing that your ministry is going to be the hallmark of, as God as your witness, as the Lord Jesus as your witness, with the kingdom as your witness. In other words, Paul's not debating of whether or not the kingdom is actually going to be manifest on the earth. There's a lot of debate about that, but Paul always will talk about it very matter-of-factly as when the Lord Jesus returns and establishes his reign on the earth. There's not a whole lot of conversation about it. Paul just says it matter-of-factly. Timothy, I want you to take up the mantle of that thing to which I now charge you as if this were in view, because it is, so very much is at stake. Well, goodness, what could possibly be that big of a deal that the Apostle Paul, on the last scrap of paper that he has, sitting in a Roman dungeon before he dies, could say to Timothy, and remember, this is Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus that Paul had planted years ago that Paul had stayed there for three years teaching. Now Timothy is trying to continue on that work. And we know from the beginning of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that Timothy struggled with timidity. He had a tendency to wilt, to fall back, to be a little bit reserved. Paul says no. Paul doesn't write to the Galatians. He doesn't write to the people in Corinth or Athens or even Berea. His one last shot sitting in prison is, I've got to bolster Timothy, and this is my charge to you, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. One of the most famous expressions in the Greek New Testament. lagon. It's a royal decree. It has the idea of a medieval herald riding into town, into a village, unrolling the scroll and saying, Hear ye, hear ye, thus saith the king. That's what it means to preach the word. Hear ye, hear ye, thus saith the Lord. Timothy, this is my solemn charge to you. This is your jam. That's a new Eric translation. This is the thing that you are to be about exclusively. Preach the word. Herald the words of the king. You don't get to add your opinions and your thoughts. You don't get to say, well, yeah, I think what the king really means. No, 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 no. You herald the word of the king. You help people to understand its meaning so that they will be under its meaning. And that really is the job description of the preacher, to say, thus saith the Lord. It is the prophetic utterance of God's word. Preach the word. And we say in English the following expression, be ready in season and out of season. It's just two words in the Greek. I think Paul's sitting in a dungeon and he's just sort of harshly, tersely, In a staccato blurt, he just gives two words. Good times, bad times. It's just two words. Preach the word when it's good, when it's bad. When you feel like it, when you don't feel like it. Preach the word when you think you've got the silver bullet and you're going to win every soul in the building. Preach when you feel like you've got nothing. Preach how you feel about it, how you think you can do is not your call. Doesn't matter what's going on in the world, in the culture, in the community, you preach the word, Timothy. I charge you by God Himself, by Christ Jesus, and with His kingdom in view, Timothy, this is what you do. And just so you know, this is very convicting. That's why we are very serious about gathering around God's word as Bethel, as the church. Because this is the final apostolic charge to the preacher. Preach the word. There's a lot of other stuff out there that we could do. We could have a whole series on grandparents and gardening. It's good. Gardening is awesome. We've got to eat, but it's not eternal. No staying power, nothing transformative in that. It is about preaching God's word, whether you feel like it or not, in season or out of season. And then he's going to give him three words of how this is supposed to go down. While you're preaching, you're supposed to use this word. And here's what the word's going to accomplish. It's going to reprove We don't use that word a whole lot in our normal parlance. It's kind of weird when it has the idea of convicting somebody of something. Hey, this is God's moral standard of righteousness. This is what he says is the virtuous life that actually works. And when we preach the word and people go, Ugh, but I don't do that and I don't, even, I don't even agree with that. Reproof says, no, this is what God says and it's sort of like shining a bright light in the dark corners of your closet. When we come to God's word, there are some areas of our lives that we would really, candidly, rather just stay hidden. But God's word reveals those things. The book of Hebrews says that it's like a a sharp two-edged sword that it cuts away all of our false flesh crutches. The book of James says it's like a mirror. We look into it and we see all of our defects. Ugh! Sometimes that's what God's word does. In other words, we get to use this word when we preach it to afflict the comfortable. They come in feeling good about themselves. We open God's word and they go, ugh, my life kind of stinks. We go, yeah, never gonna pass the plate. Not really. It's not how it works. But we get to reprove people. The second word goes along with it. It's rebuke. This is even harsher. By the way, if you ever find a pastor who says his spiritual gift is rebuke, that's probably a weird guy. You don't wanna hang around him. He shouldn't be in ministry. That's not good. Nobody likes to rebuke. It's calling a spade a spade and saying, reproof is, that's an error. Rebuke is, now stop it. Stop it! You're, you're doing that to your kids. You're doing that in your job. You're doing that with your spouse. Stop it! That's rebuke. And by the way, that's hard for someone like Timothy. Candidly, transparently, that's hard for someone like me. I told Ross Strader, our senior pastor, the other day, I said, you know, it's, some of these things are hard. I don't like having these hard conversations with these folks. I'm a recovering people pleaser. And he laughed and he goes, oh, that's really cute. You think you're in recovery. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore but sometimes we have to say some hard things we have to afflict the comfortable but i'm so glad the third word is there reprove rebuke and exhort the words parakaleo to come alongside and encourage to bolster to build up to bless to come alongside by the way that is also one of the titles of the holy spirit So when we teach God's word, we get to actually cooperate and partner with what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in his people, with his word. We get to do that. So we also then get to comfort the afflicted. This is what happens when we preach. This is our model. And Paul says there are two words that I want you to have as your agency, the way you do this, with complete patience. It's always fun to read this stuff and realize how badly I have done it some of these things. Yes. When a leader loses his or her temper, and yes, to my shame, it has happened. And if you're trying to make eye contact with me right now because it happened with you, I'm not going to look at you, but I am very sorry. I'm sure it happened, and I feel really badly about it, and I've given it to Jesus at the cross. So there, it's over. Let it go. I'm sorry. With great patience, macrothumia, intense struggle. Sometimes it's hard to say hard things to people who don't want to hear it. I know that. But to do so with great patience, complete patience, and teaching... It's not enough just to call out error. Say, hey, God's word says we shouldn't be about this. We also have to give a way forward. By the way, this is good leadership. By the way, this is good parenting. Matt's already mentioned it's Father's Day, so I want to echo that and say happy Father's Day to all of you who are dads who I trust, prayerfully want to not just correct and reprove and rebuke, but also give a way forward. We have to do it with great patience and with teaching. Hey, that didn't work so well, did it? But this is our way forward. Here's how to do the next wise thing. That's what dads do. Here's how to do the next wise thing until the race is finished. Timothy, this is how you are to execute your ministry. Why is this such a big deal, Paul? Well, because Paul's sitting in a dungeon in Rome, the center of the Roman Empire, and he has watched as this culture, this empire has reached its zenith of human evolution and cultural uh, elevation and he's watched it as it it has demoralized and descended into a pit of depravity. And Paul says this in verse 3, For the time is coming, and in fact has come, when people will not endure sound teaching. That word sound is hygienic. Where it just works and it builds a virtuous, healthy life. People will not endure it, but having itching ears, They will accumulate for themselves. Literally, they will heap up teachers to suit their own passions. In Galatians chapter 5, we're told that our own default natural passions are by default, by nature, opposed to God's will for our lives. We actually want to bring ourselves harm. God's Spirit wants to do us good. And he says, this is the way, walk in it. But like an obstinate child, we ball up our fists and we say, no, we will not have it. We know better. Paul says there's going to come a time when entire civilizations and cultures will reject what God says is the virtuous life. And by the way, it's almost like Paul knew what he was talking about because God's word is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. Every single society, every single people group, every nation, every culture, ever in human history, you can do the anthropological, sociological study, every single people group ever has followed this pattern. There is a dissent and a decline where people will only hear what they want to hear. And those who persist in saying, no, this is God's moral code of righteousness, will be called something like a fundamentalist or much, much worse, a fuddy-duddy or old-fashioned. Yet we still hear that. There will come a time when society will say, no, you say that's morally appropriate. We say that it is not. And we will Bring to ourselves teachers who will tell us what we want to hear. Paul is quoting from Ezekiel, what was happening in his day, to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, to Micah, to Hosea, and Amos. All of which said, you are a people who will gather to yourself prophets that simply tell you what you want to hear. Paul said that's the normative cycle of every culture and country. So be aware of that. He says, they will turn away, verse 4, from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths... Not the truth of God's word, but they will seek other ideologies, other legends that will sound cool and feel good. This is why we still have a lot of people, even in our day and age today, that is increasingly secular, that will say, well, I'm a very spiritual person. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. I think it just means that I wear hemp and like avocado. I don't know what else it means, because you don't see any other evidence of spiritual health and, and vitality in them. Paul says that's what's going to happen. But as for you, verse 5, pastor, preacher, leader, elder, as for you, always be sober-minded. Nephes. It is clear-headed. Not allowing anything to darken or distract your thinking. You always have to be ready. You always have to be on. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Hey, Timothy, don't take a step back. Take a step forward. Willingly receive it. You're going to encounter resistance, endure the suffering. He says that you are to do the work of an evangelist. Bring the gospel to bear in every conceivable context, no matter where you are. In your work life, you bring the gospel to bear. In your home life, you bring the gospel to bear. In your church life, you bring the gospel to bear. In your community, you bring the gospel to bear. You are always giving the gospel. There is no such thing as a facet of your life in which the gospel is not relevant. Do you know that? There is no facet of your life in which the gospel is not relevant. I challenge you to find a facet of your life in which the gospel does not hold some sway. And if you can prove it to me, you get to preach next week, all right? So so there's not one. You bring the gospel to every facet of your life. And then he says, very challengingly at the end of verse 5, fulfill your ministry. In other words, always be filling it up to dispense it because Timothy, there is never a time when you are not a pastor. Elder, there is never a time when you're not an elder. Deacon, there is never a time when you're not a deacon. Volunteer ministry leader, there is never a time when you're not a volunteer ministry leader. You always are. What is a ministry? It's an active verb. It simply means through the dust, diaconos. We kick up the dust as we serve. We are always looking for opportunities to minister. We say this all the time in our Discover Bethel. What is a ministry? It is simply the activity and the attitude that executes the purpose of the church. That's what a ministry is. We all have one. Paul finally comes to it. He's recognized, okay, this is it. He takes a breath. And in verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. During Paul's first Roman imprisonment, uh, he's also in Rome, but he's under house arrest in a rented apartment. It's not all that bad, actually. And he writes a letter to the church at Philippi, we call Philippians. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, I am being prepared as a drink offering. But he knows he's going to get out of that imprisonment. So he says, I'm just being prepared as one. But here in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, I am a drink offering. And he's quoting from Numbers chapter 28, verse 24. A drink offering, a libation, is in the Levitical sacrificial system. As you're going to prepare a lamb to be a burnt offering in which the lamb is completely consumed to pay for the sin of the people, right before the lamb is completely consumed, you pour a cup of wine on it. Paul says, that's me, that's me. Because the Lamb of God has been completely consumed and I have been poured out alongside him. I'm not the Lamb of God, but I have been poured out. That's it. I'm not gonna make it out of this one. I know that my time to die has now come. And so he uses this euphemism, the time of my departure, analusis. It's uh, the unleashing. It's a sailor's term for weighing anchor. It's a soldier's term for, for breaking camp. Paul says, that's it. I'm not going to escape this one. It's time for my exodus, if you will. Verse 7, he gives three athletic metaphors to sum up his own life. Man, this is such a, a touching text. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul encountered more opposition than I can ever imagine. He's beaten with rods multiple times. He's flogged with the lash at least five times at the hands of the Jews. He's shipwrecked four times. He's stoned probably to death. He is left for, uh, left for dead. He's cold. He's starving. All of these things, and Paul never flagged. He always faced the resistance, and he pushed ahead. Why? Because he was such a superhero. No, because he loved the one that had redeemed him. Because he knew but the one who loved him was with him, and that was all he needed to press forward. I have fought the good fight. I have met resistance. I have encountered opposition, and I pressed forward. He says, I have finished the race. I have gone where I was told to go. I have gone to the places that God led me. I didn't always understand it. I didn't even like it sometimes, but I have gone. Paul said, I want to go to Bithynia. Jesus said, no. I want to go to Ephesus. Jesus said, no. No. And so he went to Europe, to the first church in Europe, to Philippi. He didn't always understand it, but he was always obedient. He followed his course. Then he says, I have kept the faith. Not just belief. The faith is a technical term that means the content of what what we believe. I have held to, I have clung to the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. I have built my life on proclaiming that truth. Because it's worth it. All those things, I followed the rules, I never fouled out, is what Paul's saying here. And so, verse 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. This gets me. Who was the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul? He was Saul of Tarsus. And the most important thing in his entire universe was his own self-righteousness. He says, I am the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law, nobody more righteous. I am the top of the heap. He was most proud of that until he realized it was all filthy rags. He could accomplish no righteousness on his own, not even a shred. And so he knows that at the end of his life, listen what he's going to get. This is his reward as he is vying with this in view. I know there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The crown is the Stephanos. That's where we get our word for Stephen or for Stephanie. It's the victor's laurel wreath that the, the judge hands to the victor to say, you've done it. But the grammar is kind of funky here. It's not that Paul accomplished it. It's not that Paul did it. It's the righteousness that is given to him. You finished your race and now you get my victor's crown. You get the finished scorecard, if you will, of Jesus. Paul says, I know that that is what awaits me, but it's not even that he cares about the crown. He doesn't. He says, this crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. I'm gonna see him. The same one that knocked me off my horse on the way to Damascus, I'm going to see him again. And this time, he's not gonna kick me off my horse. This time, he's going to embrace me. And it's going to be glorious. Paul says, I don't mind leaving. In fact, I'm rather sort of looking forward to it. He will award it to me on that day. And this is good news, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All of those who are deeply, deeply in love with the fact that God in Christ redeemed us to himself and to one another by sending his son, Jesus the Christ, to become all of our sins, so that we might become the righteousness of God, for all who love that notion, there are weights for them as well, an encounter with the living Christ as well. So how do we take this last passage, this last chapter of paul 's life? Will Lord willing wrap this, uh, this uh, sermon series up next week? I encourage you invite you to come back. But just these first eight verses of chapter four, how can we apply them and bring them to bear in our lives? Just three quick points. Number one center on god's word paul charges timothy i charge you as solemnly sternly and strongly as i possibly can preach the word center on god's word and i know i know there's a lot of other books out there a lot of other blogs out there a lot of other devotionals out there i get it and those are good and listen nobody loves to read just mindless materials more than me at my house we call that brain gravy i love it just sit around and just read and it Nothing really ever happens, but it feels good. It's just relaxing. Fine. But if that's all you ever do, then just know there is nothing eternal nor transformative about that. Center on God's Word. As I talk to people, my recurring sense is that many people don't bother with God's Word because they've simply found it wanting. Once upon a time, they started reading through the Bible as a year-long program. They made it through Genesis. That was pretty cool. Exodus was kind of neato then they got to Leviticus and right about the time the hair turned white in chapter 18 they turned off like that's it I don't want to hear more about kinkers and hair that's weird I'm done with this and it didn't really feel the way they wanted it to feel and so they just quit couple with I'm not really sure I believe that this book really has power that God really does speak in the present tense well I want to challenge you to center on God's Word it's not just reading letters on a page it is a spiritual discipline of saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I encourage you, read the Gospel of John and then read the Gospel of John again. And I promise you, I guarantee you, as you begin to have encounters with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, your coworkers, your community members, that will begin to come up out of you because that's what God's word promises that God's spirit will do with God's word. Center on God's Word believe that God will do a work with it in you because he will number two fill full your ministry Paul says fulfill your ministry I say fill full it's the same word fill full your ministry it's possible to hear 2nd Timothy chapter 4 and say well okay that's a min- that's a letter that's a-, a word a passage for preachers and pastors I'm not one of those I have a real job congratulations I'm glad that you do but you're also a minister You have a ministry. If you are a believer, every single one of us has a ministry. The New Testament knows no unchurched Christian, which means we all have a job to do in furthering the purpose of this church. All of us, every single one of us do. I trust that you have a ministry in your workplace. All of us have different spheres of influence. At your workplace, you don't cheat in business dealings, you don't cheat on expense reports, because you believe the gospel, which says you have already received every good and perfect gift in Christ you want for nothing. He has already supplied everything you need. And when we sin, when we cheat and lie at work, it's because we fail to believe the gospel. At home, I have to win against my wife. I have to win against my husband. I have to win against my kids. That's because I have a failure to believe the gospel that I've already been declared a loser and yet found victorious at the cross of Christ. When I believe the gospel, it has a way of resolving all the conflicts in my home. It just does. But in my church, when when I see conflicts and rifts in the church, it's because somewhere, some of us are failing to believe the gospel In the community, there's all these sorts of things happening perhaps. Why? Because people have failed to believe the gospel. Bring the gospel to every facet of your life. Dads, this is your deal. This is where you fathers get to figure out how can I bring the gospel to bear in every facet of my kid's life? Not training them to be religious and litigious, no. But to be lovers of his appearing. Those who are crazy about what God has done in Christ. Number three, live with the end in mind live with the end in mind it's really interesting one of the first things that popped to mind as i was reading this passage hey this is what paul's thrust is here but it occurred to me that i've said this before as an application so i did a quick search on my computer through my sermon archives and (laughs) yeah i've used this as an application about 20 times And it's not just because I am wildly unimaginative and fabulously uncreative. It's not that. It's because the text is always telling us this over and over again. I did it in the Old Testament. I did it in my study in 1 Peter. The text is always telling us to live with the end in mind, to vie with the view. Paul fought the good fight. He ran his race. He held the faith. that's good leadership he's calling timothy to do the exact same thing but the reason he did is because he knew he would see jesus again and for him that was the most fabulous thing he could imagine that's what got him through he lived with the end in mind and so i wonder when was the last time you allowed in your sanctified imagination to really contemplate to consider the christ I mean, to to really imagine, just allow it, not to make for yourself a graven image, but to just imagine, what will it be like to see him? I confess that there are many times as I get bogged down with the busyness of life and I'm faced with the immediacy of, of family matters and finances and friends and Netflix and all the other stuff that vies for my attention, that it's sometimes easy to go significantly long stretches without considering Christ. And I begin to not vie with a view. I simply begin to drift and tread water, and it's actually exhausting. But I want to tell you, and I've shared this with some of you before, about a year and a half ago, some of you know that I had a a health scare, a pretty massive heart attack. And uh, there was a couple moments when things went pretty significantly south, and everything just sort of stopped and shut down. And I remember as I was laying there on the slab thinking, hey, this might not turn around. And I remember I had this deeply theological uh, idea, this notion, and it went like this. This is gonna be so cool. That's literally what went through my head. Like this is gonna be so cool, I'm gonna, wow. And then somebody was shaking me and going, you need to cough, sir, you need to cough. And so I started coughing and it all started back up again. And it's kind of disappointing because then I just realized I didn't get to see him. I was just still laying there with no pants, kind of a letdown. But I did have that thought, oh my goodness. It's very tranquil, I might get to see him. It's gonna be so cool. And I'll tell you, I've thought back on that several times, like, wow, I almost got to see him. And one day I will. Sure as shooting, one day I will see him. And it is that which charges my fervor and my focus, and when I get distracted, when I get down, when I get depraved, I have to marshal that back, and I have to vie with a view, knowing that I will receive His crown of righteousness. Now, here's what I would say from this text. Every single one of us, every single person ever, will encounter the risen Lord Jesus Christ one day. The only question is on what terms. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I hope you will have heard the preaching of his word that says God in Christ desperately wants to redeem others to himself and to one another. So I invite you to believe that's the gospel. For the rest of you, perhaps you've been a believer for a long time, but there are pockets of your life that the gospel has been sort of shielded from. I invite you to be reproved, to be rebuked and exhorted by this passage, to let the gospel come to bear in all those aspects of your life. You will vie with a view of the Christ. See, Jesus, he's the worthy one. He's the one who finished his race, who fought the fight, who kept the faith all the way through, and now he offers us his full righteousness. I pray that all of us will vie with a view. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you've done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And Father, I pray that you will continue to use your word by your spirit among these, your people, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort us And if there is one here this morning, Father, who does not know you, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, that by grace they will step out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that there is no aspect of our lives in which the gospel is not relevant. And would you give us courage and wisdom to bring it to bear. I pray, Father, that you will have your way with us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible podcast.